Hey Life Canton, uh, Roger here, one of the directors at Life Canton. So glad that you're joining us, whether it's your first time or you're a returning listener. Uh, if you are a first time listener, be sure to like, subscribe, follow, all that stuff so you can get our podcasts, uh, messages, other things that we put out. If you're a re- returning listener, welcome back. Uh, but regardless of how many times you've listened, I want to remind you that we are a community uh, that's being led by God and a specific vision, uh, which is to uh, reclaim our identities in Jesus and to uh, bear the torch of Christ's love and justice. So if you want to participate in that, um, there's a lot of ways to do that. But one way you can do that is by supporting the mission of the church through generosity. So uh, if you feel called to do that, please head over to our church center app uh, to give a gift, um, a recurring gift to support uh, the mission of what God is doing at this church. Uh, but today we are in a brand new series called God With Us. You're about to hear a message from Pastor Jared, uh, who's going to introduce us to uh, the word Emmanuel and, and what it really means. Uh, give that a listen and I'll catch up with you in just a second. Amen. Welcome to Life Canton. My name is Jared, and I am one of the pastors here. And here at Life Canton, we have a vision here, in case you're newer and haven't heard this, and that is to reclaim our identity in Jesus and to bear the torch of Christ's justice and love. And so everything that we do, everything we talk about is centered around that idea. And we're going to get into that in just a second. But before I go too much further, I just want to know what I'm dealing with in here. Do we have any Michigan fans? Uh, Just checking. Okay. Now, here's the thing. Don't rub it in too much because one of our tech volunteers this morning is actually a Purdue fan, went to Purdue. Uh, I'm not going to point him out, but his name starts with a G and ends in reg. So um, we don't want to call any attention to him right now. But we're grateful for our volunteers, regardless of who they cheer for, regardless of who you cheer for. And if you're not into football, you are welcome here. You belong. That's okay. Uh, We are in a brand new series for this month of December, and it's in this season of what the church, if you grew up in church, you know this, it's called Advent. And it's just a word that means arrival or the expectation, the anticipation, the waiting for God to arrive. And we get this name in the scripture, this name of God, uh, Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. That's what we're going to be talking about this month. We're looking for God's arrival to be with us. How many of you can relate to this desire to have God with you? How many of you, you look at your current circumstances right now, your situation in life, maybe the pressure, maybe the bills, maybe all of the chaos and the brokenness in your life, and you're like, I just need you, God, to arrive. I need you to show up or show up in a new way. This is important. Why is this important? Because as a pastor for almost 20 years, uh, several conversations that I've had have had some kind of a common denominator about the distance or the closeness or the nearness of God. People wondering, is God even with me? Or I feel like God is distant. We've heard it here on this stage before at New Life Sunday when people come up before they're getting baptized, they share a little bit of their story, their testimony, and they talk about the presence of God. Sometimes they'll even say, I felt before, I felt like God was a million miles away. We talk about the distance of God and it can make God feel small and insignificant. And then it makes us feel isolated and alone. Let's just take faith out of the equation for just a moment and talk about the condition of our country. Right now, the human condition is in a pretty poor spot. A third of the people in this country alone express that they are extremely lonely. Loneliness, an all-time high. 
at least that's recordable. And in fact, they continued to survey uh, young adults specifically, that young adults have felt an increase, 43% uh, of young adults have felt an increase in loneliness in just the last couple years. Also, 63% of young adults claim that they are suffering from serious anxiety and depression, which, if you know anything about mental health, can lead you to feel like you're the only one that's going through it. That you're the only one struggling through this. It's isolating. It's lonely. Do you feel this way? Do you know people that feel this way? Is there this sense of, is anybody with me? In the ancient world, the people of God dealt with this sense of loneliness and isolation in the world. A lot of times throughout the entire Old Testament, wondering, God, where are you? Are you going to show up? And just to give you a little bit of context, the people of God, the Israelites at the time, weren't the only ones that were religious. In fact, the rest of the known world was extremely religious. A lot of other cultures and empires had all different kinds of gods. They they were polytheistic. They believed in a lot of different gods that controlled different uh, things in nature. But they also had lots of idol representations of those gods as reminders in a sense that God was in control or that their God was in control of a particular kind of thing. But the people of God, the Israelites, were viewed as weak, as vulnerable, because they only had one God who is invisible, and this God commanded them to not have any graven images or any idol representations to remind them that God was with them. And so this made them vulnerable. They're often waiting on God to arrive, to show up in a new way. This made them vulnerable, not only just in their own relationship with God, but it made them vulnerable to the outside world. And oftentimes they were attacked by strong, violent empires. They were constantly vulnerable. And this made them extremely anxious and depressed and lonely and confused and isolated. This is a hard place the people of God find themselves. And so throughout moments in history, they decide, well, we're going to take matters into our own hands. If we're feeling alone and depressed and anxious and lonely and isolated, well, then we'll just fix the problem ourselves. We'll install kings or politicians of the day into office to sort of lead them and to maybe even be a representative of a godhead for them. And unfortunately, it only led in abuse of power and corruption. Didn't go well for them because God said, no, I want you to depend on me but they couldn't get this. They continued to be vulnerable. And eventually, eventually, this prophet named Isaiah arrives on the scene for them. And this prophet is speaking to one of the kings at the time, and he's giving a lot of bad news to the king. And he says, hey, because you have become so corrupt, because you have become distracted from God and from God's power and presence, and you have neglected God, then guess what? You're about to get attacked once again by another violent, oppressive empire. Merry Christmas, (laughs) right? This is really depressing and really lonely. But in the midst of this conversation, there is a slight glimmer of hope. Because in this passage, in this story, is the first place that we get this new name for God, which is about his arrival. We get the name Emmanuel. Check this out. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says this, the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means 
God with us. God is with us. This message of hope. God is no longer going to be this sort of weird, cosmic, abstract idea in the sky. No, God is now actually going to be present, Emmanuel, with us. And not just with you, not just with me, but us. We have to fight that individualistic mindset that sometimes we put onto or into the scriptures. This is a collective thing that is happening. God is going to be with us. Now, this sounds great. This sounds like an incredible message of hope, but what we might not always realize or even know about prophets in the ancient world is that they were incredibly unpopular. Nobody liked the prophets. They were always being neglected and ostracized by their community. So for Isaiah to say to a whole people group who for centuries have felt like God is not only invisible, but is God even with us for them to hear this new promise that, hey, no, it's going to be okay. God is with us. God will be with us felt probably like an insensitive joke to the people of God. And in a lot of ways, they're kind of justified in feeling that way if they did. Because at the time that this prophecy happens, it's not for another several hundred years before that prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. So yeah, they're a little on edge. They're a little anxious, wondering, is God going to show up? I feel alone. See, this isn't just an ancient concept or idea or feeling. I wonder, as I asked before, do you feel this way? Do you feel this same way, wondering, is is God even with me? Under the weight of all of the pressure that you feel because of whatever circumstance you're going through, whatever anxiety or depression or loneliness that you're experiencing, wondering, is God really with me or is there even a God? And the weight of that can be so crushing. Then you get this promise, no, God is with you. With us. Fast forward several hundred years, and now we get to this moment where this promise, this prophecy is about to be fulfilled. They can feel it. They can taste it. Something is in the air. Something new is about to happen. And so we fast forward to Luke chapter one. I'm going to put the reference up on the screen and you can take some time to get to that passage if you have your own Bible or if you have a phone with a Bible on it and you can follow along in that way. But just to give you a little bit of a context of what's happening, what has happened right before we're about to read this next section is this young teenage poor peasant Jewish girl has been visited by a messenger. The Bible uses the word angel. It's just another word for messenger. And this messenger visits Mary and says, you're going to be the one. You're going to be the one that's going to bring about this promise of Emmanuel, this idea of God with us. It's going to be you. And so you can imagine the terror and the excitement that this teenage, poor Jewish girl is feeling. At one moment in the story, she goes to visit a relative of hers who is also with child. And this relative named Elizabeth is going to bring in another child into the world named John, who will sort of prepare the way for the child that Mary brings into the world. And as they're discussing this hope and this promise that's about to be fulfilled, Mary is so excited. She wells up with a song and she begins to sing. And this is where we are in the passage, Luke chapter one, verses 46 to 55. It reads like this. Mary responded, 
Oh, how my soul praises or magnifies the Lord. How my spirit rejoices and magnifies in God, my Savior, for he took notice of his lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He's helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful for he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. This is often referred to as Mary's magnificat. It's a Latin word for magnify. My soul magnifies the Lord. This is the magnificat. And that word magnify kind of at first sounds like a churchy word, like magnify, sort of like majesty and glorify. That sounds like churchy words maybe if you're newer to the church. Uh, But really we use this word magnify in other parts of our world, in other contexts as well, probably more than we even realize. I mean, think about a magnifying glass, right? A magnifying glass. My kids have a magnifying glass at our house. And last summer, I caught my son um, trying to fry ants on the sidewalk with them. But that's another conversation for another day. But what, do we, what is the purpose of a magnifying glass, right? We might say, well, it's to make an object bigger. To make an object bigger. But if you take away the magnifying glass, the object is the exact same size. The magnifying glass doesn't make the, ob- uh, the uh, image or the object bigger. It makes our view of that object bigger. To magnify something is to change our view, our perspective of the thing that we are looking at. Think about it like this. Um, If you're fascinated with space or images in space, a long time ago, we got images in space uh, because of a magnifying lens on a telescope, right? It made the image bigger. And one of the images that we got looked like this that's going to be on the screen. Right? We see stars and galaxies. I think that's the Milky Way. I'm not super smart about space. I'm assuming that's the Milky Way. Just go with it for now. That's what it is. That's an incredible image to see. But then as the years develop and as the uh, technology develops, we get new images. We get greater images. We get clearer images. And we get next, the next image that looks a little bit like this. Now, the image that you see on the left is from the Hubble telescope that many of us probably learned about in school. But more recently, the image on the right is from the James Webb telescope. Here's the thing. The, the images themselves, the objects themselves have always been there. They've always been that way. But we have magnified our view. We have, in a sense, expanded our understanding. There's been greater, expansive clarity and beauty that we see as we magnify our view of what's out in space. Why is this important? Because so often as a pastor, I hear things like, God feels distant. God doesn't feel close to me. God isn't near to me because of my situation. And when Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, it's not changing the size of God. It's not changing the distance or the nearness of God. She is getting a new perspective of God's arrival. We need to shift our view of God. We need to magnify our lens of God that God's presence hasn't changed one bit. He has always been with us. He has always been close to us. He has always been just the size that he needs to be. 
in our situation. Mary's song is to magnify her view that God is about to arrive in a new way. He's always been close. And now it's going to reflect itself in a new way. I'm going to see it in a new way. Now Mary's song is a reminder that God is going to arrive. And she does talk about the individualistic impact that it's going to have, right? She says things like, uh, all generations will call me blessed. He has done great things for me. But we have to continue on in the song to see that it's not just about her. Very quickly, she moves to understanding that it's about an entire people of God. She moves from a me to we understanding of God. This is so important when we talk about magnifying our view of God, that it's not just about me and God, but us and God. It's why Emmanuel means God with us. We move from a me to we perspective when we magnify the Lord. How in the world do you and I do that in our culture? How do we magnify the Lord? How do we magnify God, especially at Christmas time? especially in our culture's time of Christmas and what our culture has created Christmas to be. You know, there's people that are in the church that will say, don't take Christ out of Christmas or Jesus is the reason for the season. And all of that is well and good. And I believe it's true, but I tried to understand, well, well, what's getting in the way of that? What is the barrier to taking Christ out of Christmas? And I tried to put it in my own words, and so just stick with me, but this is what I wrote down. I said this, Christmas is commercialized in our culture because companies are codependent on our consumption of cutesy things. That's what Christmas feels like to me. It's just commercialized, codependency, consumeristic, and cute. What do I mean by cute? Or cutesy. I had to look up the word cutesy because I've heard the word before. I've used the word before, but I didn't actually know what it meant. I looked it up and the definition of cutesy is forcedly and consciously cute, right? Don't you love when they use the word in the definition for the word that you're trying to find the definition for? Um, Forcedly and consciously cute. What do we do with cute things? We look at them. We just observe them. They are for our visual pleasure, Just to give you a better idea of what I'm talking about, I want to show you an image that is just the epitome of cuteness at Christmas, right? Now, how do we respond when we see an image like that? Uh, Exactly. It's cute. It's cute. Of course. Why wouldn't you put your dog on a bow tie and a Santa hat? Because that's what Christmas is. And if you were to take an image like this and go to like Pakistan or the Himalayas or go somewhere in Ukraine right now and be like, uh, they ask you, what is Christmas all about? And you hand them this picture. Here it is. Here it is. I think you want to laugh, but you're not choosing to because you're not sure how you're supposed to feel right now. Because the reality is, is this is what Christmas has become for a lot of us. Now, here's the thing. I'm not saying don't decorate. I'm not saying don't give gifts to one another. But when cutesy is the overarching magnified view of what Christmas has become, it becomes incredibly hard to magnify God in the midst of it. It's also incredibly consumeristic, right? We just want more. I'll take a line from our generosity series that we just did, the position paper that we just talked about. We said we will always want more and we convince ourselves that we need more. We just need more stuff. 
And here's the other image. The problem with this is that when we marry our culture's version of Christmas to what it actually is, the two become one and the same. I want to show you this image. We've got white Jesus taking a selfie with Santa, right? Like, this is what it becomes. We're like, well, if we're not supposed to take Christ out of Christmas, but I don't want to really like have to question some of the status quo of cultural Christmas, well, then I'll just marry the two together. And this is what we do. This is what Christmas has become. Is it any wonder that we struggle to magnify our view of God, that we continue to perpetually feel lonely and anxious and exhausted, thinking that the consumerism of more goods and more stuff will complete us and make us whole. And here's the cool thing, is that many of you don't buy into this. You actually don't buy into this, but in some ways, Christmas can actually be crushing. Because Christmas is just a reminder that you, you can't participate in sort of the consumerism because of your economic situation. And so maybe you find your place in a place of anxiety, uh, uh, comparing yourself to other people who can do all of the things, all of the consumeristic thing. And you wish that, I, oh, I wish I could do those things, but I can't. Or maybe Christmas, the holidays, is just an annual reminder that it's crushing and lonely because you've lost somebody. And the holidays just accelerate that. Why is this important? Because all of the things that I just talked about, all of the consumeristic, commercialized cuteness that Christmas has become in our culture, you can't find that in here. Because just a few minutes ago, I read one of the most Christmassy verses that the New Testament has to offer but none of it is cute or commercialized. I mean, think about verses 52 to 53. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. That's a Christmas verse. This is a verse about Mary's understanding of what God is going to do in the world. God is going to bring about liberation and equity. That's a callback to Nathan's message from last week. This is about something more than what the empire gives us. This is about liberation and equity, which is very this-worldly, are the things that she's talking about, the things that she's singing about. And notice that none of what Mary talks about is some abstract, ethereal thing that takes place in the sky. It's not, now this person is coming into my life, and then once they die, I will pray a prayer and invite them into my heart so that I can go to heaven when I die. None of that's in here. That's not to say that that's not part of the story. It's just not part of Mary's song. Mary's song is about God saying, finally, Jesus will be with you, and he will put the world right again. It's this Hebrew concept of shalom, that there will be not just peace, but wholeness, rightness, and harmony once again. And God's arrival is not just some past thing, not just some present thing, but also a future thing. God's arrival is very, very different than the arrival of the empire. God's presence and power comes in a very different way than the power and the presence of the empire at the time. The empires are built on greed and abuse of power and consumerism and military might. But what God is doing in Emmanuel, God with us, is he is flipping 
the world upside down. She talks about it. He's, he's flipping the governmental world upside down. He's flipping the economic world upside down. On the mind of this 13-year-old girl is the liberation of her people and the equitable distribution of resources. This is what she's passionate about. This is why she is singing. And how in the world is God going to do this? For through some cosmic distance in the sky or through some rich ruler and prince that comes on a horse and then goes and takes their place on a hill in a palace or maybe through some really rich person who then runs for office and enacts new policies? Nope. Nope, that's not the way he comes. It's not the way he arrives. Emmanuel, God with us, looks very, very different than what we want it to and than what we expect it to. Mary's song is built on this promise from the prophecy of Isaiah. These prophecies would have been handed down through her family. She probably would have heard them often. She might have come across Something from Isaiah 9 that says, For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. And then it says this, a verse that many of us have probably heard if we've grown up in church. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. This is different. This is a different kind of arrival than what we are used to. He will arrive in a different kind of way that doesn't look like the empire's way of arriving in power and presence. And it doesn't look like more consumption, consumerism. She is rejoicing because not only is God arriving with us, but God is arriving as us. What do I mean by that? See, Mary alludes to her status as a lowly servant girl, a poor peasant Jewish girl, under the thumb of the Roman Empire oppressors at the time. If God's going to come in Mary's mind, there's only two groups of people that are represented in her world at the time. It's either the Jews, the poor oppressed Jews, or it's the powerful military might Roman Empire. How's God going to show up? through her, as her. God will be like her. God is coming on the behalf of the lowly and he is the lowly. The question for us, church, is are we willing to magnify our view of that version of God? Or will we magnify the empire that's built on codependency, consumerism, commercialism. We can't do both. We can't marry the two together, cultural Christmas and Christ of Christmas. We can't because if we do, then we actually won't see God for who he really is. 
Mary's song changes all of that. And Christmas in our culture has become dependent on a different version of Christmas than the verses that I just read. And this isn't just my opinion or just my musings on society. This is actually a fact. You can read stats that say the average American goes into $1,200 of new debt, new debt every Christmas. That's the average right now. And we are looking for comfort from more consumerism, cutesy things. Guess what? It hasn't led to any more joy, any more hope, any more peace. We have only become more anxious, more depressed, and more lonely. Mary's song is a reminder to magnify God. Magnify our view. And as we magnify, as our souls magnify the Lord, what it reveals is God's comfort and his calling instead of consumerism and cutesy things. Mary's song isn't cute. Mary's song is different. It's a reminder of God's comfort that God is going to be with the lonely, the forgotten, the downtrodden, and the marginalized. Consumption will not bring that comfort. It just won't. More things won't fill the need that's in our hearts. Only God's comfort can do that. Part of the way that we best experience God's comfort is by being in community, being together, reaching out to one another, caring for one another, and truly comforting one another. My action step for you this week is to keep being here regularly. I know it sounds simple, but it's actually quite profound to be here regularly. And I don't have to say that to most of all of you because you're here right now. But there are those that are not part of a faith community. We need to reach out to them to provide the comfort for them because they're in this place of feeling like God is distant. God doesn't care about me. Is there even a God? We get to be agents of God's comfort for one another. Think about this. I I have conversations with people that say, God feels distant. And I might say, hey, are you part of a faith community? Are you part of church? Are you coming to church? Are you with us? Not just to come and show up for an hour, but to be here, to pray, to worship, and sometimes to break bread together. Here's the thing. There's roughly 740 hours in a month, in a given month. If the average churchgoer, which right now the average churchgoer goes about once a month, if church lasts an hour, depending on how long I preach. If church lasts an hour, an hour out of 740 hours, I can imagine that you would feel God is distant. I'm not surprised that we feel like God isn't close to me. If all we ever do is spend an hour in community. Now, why is that important? I ran into somebody a year or so ago who used to go to church here. And I said, hey man, it's so good to see you. We miss you, we miss you. I said, yeah, I know. I just, I needed to step away for a little while and I just, I just needed to get my heart right. I was like, okay, I understand that. Are, are you at least part of another community? Are you connecting with some other people that you can encourage and they can build you up as well? He said, no, man, it's just me and Jesus. I don't get that. I, I, I honestly don't, logically, I can't understand that because God with us, Emmanuel, is a collective thing. It's a community thing. God himself is community. The very nature of God 
is collective, is this corporate thing. You can't do just me and God. It doesn't work that way. That's actually not the heart of Jesus. We must rely on one another. Right now, I've been working through some stuff, some, some crisis, some brokenness of a friend of mine. He was a neighbor of ours back in Minnesota. And he, not part of a church at all, not a Christian at all, but somehow he connected with me. He called me normal. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. And we connected and then eventually moved here, but we stayed in touch. But more recently, he's been going through a really hard time. His life is literally falling apart. He's not in a good place right now. And he called me and he's weeping on the phone. He's like, you're literally the only person I can reach out to that won't judge me, that will listen to me, that will understand me. And on one hand, I'm, I feel flattered by that, like the, that feels good to me. But on the other hand, my heart breaks for him that he has nobody back in Minnesota that he can connect with. And so there's a part of me that I want to close the distance. I want to be with him, right? So that he doesn't feel distant. And so literally last week, I'm looking up flights. Like, could I even make this work? Could I like fly there Friday and come back Saturday? And just to be with him because he might not even be in a safe place right now. And I'm trying to do everything that I can. And here's the reality of the story is it's not all that resolved right now. As I stand here today. And so I'm trying to like reach out to other pastor friends of mine to say, hey, can you connect with this guy? He's on the edge. He's on his last thread because he's not part of a community. Why do we think we can do this alone? Just me and Jesus. Be here regularly. Reach out to those who are alone, who are lost, who are lonely. Consumerism of more stuff isn't going to fill that need, but the community will. And we experience God's comfort in community. The last thing is this is to serve, to serve. What do I mean by that? I mentioned that Christmas has become this cutesy thing, right? And what do we do with cutesy things? Well, we put them up on a shelf, we take pictures of them so we can look at them. We can observe them and we can stand back and we say, oh, cute, that's cute. Mary's song isn't cute. It's not cute. In fact, it's a bold invitation to calling, to do something, to participate in the work of God and bringing about the shalom that's part of God's plan for the world, to participate in a calling, to be agents of generosity and hope and mercy in the midst of great need in our world. And here's the thing, I'm not saying we can't decorate or we can't do gifts. I think I said that before, I'll say it again because I want to be abundantly clear about that. But when cute things and consumerism take over, the plot gets lost. I'll give you an example. The church that I was at uh, previous to being here, great church. We did a lot of wonderful, wonderful things and I got to learn a whole lot. But there was one thing that I always tended to struggle with and that was around Christmas time. At, at this time of the year right now, what they would do is they would put on a Christmas concert and they would do five Christmas concerts and they would get all sold out, like 2,500 people per concert. And there was all this production and show and we could say it was something for us to observe, right? But behind the scenes, 
Looking at how much something like that cost blew my mind. But even more so, looking at what it was doing relationally to some of our staff, where they were getting so burnt out working 60, 70, 80 hours a week just to put this thing on, to entertain people, to impress people, was nothing short of devastating. People's marriages were literally falling apart. But it didn't just stop there because then we moved right into Christmas Eve services. And at a church our size, we had to put on 12 Christmas Eve services. And what we did for those is we'd line the whole stage with hay and we'd put up camels and ducks and sheep, live animals for a live nativity scene because what you draw them with is what you keep them with. So we drew in thousands upon thousands of people to see the camels, not to be told, take up your cross and follow me. Not to be told, pray for your enemies, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's really hard to hear that message when what you are perpetually doing is observing cute, fun, Christmassy things. It's very hard to reconcile the two. And again, none of that is inherently bad. Concerts aren't sinful. Animals on stage aren't wrong. But when you look at the divorce rate of the county at 66%, are we going to talk about that? Can we talk about the mess that people find themselves in financially and then as a result, marriages get ruined because this cultural Christmas that we keep pushing? Mary's song is a deep invitation to calling, to serve one another when we are in great need. Because I guarantee you, every one of you in the room right now and every one of you watching online can imagine, can think about a level of brokenness that you're having to deal with. And sometimes, for some of you, Christmas just makes that brokenness that much harder. If we serve together, if we serve one another, we begin to experience healing and our souls begin to magnify the Lord. If you're not serving in some capacity, I want to invite you just as a really easy on-ramp to sign up to serve at Christmas Eve. We get to create an environment and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, there's no animals on stage. There's not going to be any animals on stage, except for the preacher. Uh, that, <laughs> I'm going to scratch that one. That didn't work at all. No, we are going to come together for one service. We're going to break bread together before and after. We're going to serve one another. We're going to sing to candlelight. We're going to talk about Jesus entering into the messiness of our brokenness. Serve one another. For some of you, you resonate with this idea of God feeling distant. Sometimes I say this because I believe it's true because of conversations that I've had with people in churches before is that they're visiting, but they're on their last thread. They're not sure that they believe anymore or if there even is a God to have hope in. If that's you, I want you to magnify your view of God 
to see him in a different way, to not believe this lie that God is distant, that he doesn't care about you, but that he's actually right next to you. He has arrived. May we magnify our view and understand that God shows up with us, but God also shows up as us in the person of Jesus, entering into our lowly state. I want to ask you to boldly pray and ask God to show himself to you in a new way. May we magnify the Lord. Would you pray with me? God, some of us get distracted by all of the clutter of Christmas. And it becomes impossible to actually see what you're doing. God, I need your comfort. There are loved ones in my life that don't know you and that don't understand your comfort. Help me. Help me to be the agent of comfort and generosity and hope for them. And God, in my circumstances, sometimes I feel like you're distant, like you're a million miles away. Remind me that you have never left my side. No matter what I'm feeling, no matter what my circumstances are, May I get to the point where I can say, my soul magnifies. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that message. Uh, Pastor Jared talked to us about uh, Emmanuel, which means God's with us and how um, that's a real promise. That is something he actually does and that that promise carries hope, um, carries weight um, beyond just uh, a reason to celebrate cutesy Christmas. So I hope you were challenged by that, um, that that stimulates you to uh, just feel the presence of God this week. Um, as a reminder, if you need any kind of support, whether that's prayer or just some uh, place to connect or plug into, uh, please let us know. You can do that on a connect card, uh, fill that out on our church center app, or just by heading to the now page on our website. Um, but let us know. We want to get you plugged in and connected and supported. So, so please um, just fill one of those out. Let us know what you need. Uh, I hope you have a blessed week. I hope that as we begin this Christmas season, like Pastor Jared, you rem- are remi- said, you are reminded that uh, God is with us, uh, right there with us through all the joys uh, and the lows and the difficulties of Christmas. Uh, I hope you have a blessed week and I'll see you again real soon.